One of the biggest struggles in e-commerce entrepreneurship is actually finding somebody to make your product, to build your product, to help you get that product into the hands of your potential buyers. Our guest today started selling online on Amazon before there was even a Seller Central. He was actually selling tennis shoes, and he was doing it at the time when dial-up internet was still mainstream. In his life of working in supply chain, he has even been asked to work as a strategic consultant for companies like Alibaba. You're going to love this guest. Stay tuned. Listen to the end. It's going to be full of great actionable items. Here we go. Hi, I'm Tim Jordan. And in every corner of the world, entrepreneurship is growing. So join me as I explore the stories of successes and failures. Listen in as I chat with the risk takers, the adventurous, and the entrepreneurial veterans. We all have a dream of living a life fulfilling our passions, and we want a business that doesn't make us punch a time clock, but instead runs around the clock, in the AM and the PM. So get motivated, get inspired. You're listening to the AM PM Podcast. So when I first started selling on Amazon, somewhat by accident, one of the strengths that I thought I had was product sourcing. I'd been working for a procurement logistics company that was a government contractor, actually, well before I got into e-commerce. And I thought I had this figured out, the logistics, the sourcing, the manufacturing, all of that stuff. In the past few years, I've realized I was not as good as I thought I was. There are people out there that know a heck of a lot more than me, that have a lot more experience, that have been deeper in the trenches and make me look like my education is on about a first grade reading level. Our guest today is one of those people. So welcome off the lobby to the AMPM podcast. Hi, team. How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad you're here. Me and Afalabi have been buddies for a little while, and, and he never ceases to amaze me with good information. We've had him do some coaching sessions on our Centurion League coaching program. He's business partners with Norm, who's a good friend of the podcast and a good friend of mine. And it was not until recently that I started learning about Afalabi's uh, history in this e-commerce thing. So off lobby, I know that later in this podcast, we're going to get into like some really great actionable stuff, some really great wisdom you're going to share, some tips. But let's start off with your history. Like tell us how you got started in this whole e-commerce Amazon game. All right. Thank you. Uh, well, thanks again once, uh, for, uh, for having me here, team. Um, it was about 2001, 2002, uh, right out of college. I had this designed some sneakers um, and they were very colorful. These were days before even Nike started to do a lot of colorful shoes. Uh, so I designed all these sneakers and I'm like, where do I make this product? You know, they were all stuck on my computer. I didn't know what to do with them. So I'm like, let me research. These were the days of dial-up internet, you know, Juno, AOL, you know, so if, you know, even Alibaba, I don't think Alibaba existed at that, at, you know, at that time. And I was looking all over to, to try to find out, you know, how I can do. So I sent out a bunch of inquiries. Uh, eventually, one person out of Taiwan replied me out of nowhere. And he's like, yeah, we could make your shoes for you, but you've got to come here. Really? You're kidding. I have to go over there? They say, yep, you have to come here. So I'm like, well, what, what, what else am I doing? I'll go. So I jump on the plane, went to Taiwan. 2001, 2002, and uh, very, very nice guy uh, took me to his factory. I later realized it was a, a trading company, not actually a factory, which was a, a big shock for me. But I didn't know I didn't know much at that time, so I was just going by what I knew. 
So we ended up developing these cool shoes. We went into mold making. That was how I, I knew that molds were very expensive, when you, especially when you're doing mold for shoes. You have to make a mold for each size, not just one mold. You, know? you have to make it for all your sizes. Uh, but it was a really, really great experience. So, um, and, and let me pause for a second. The mold is used for the sole of the shoes, right? Because yes, correct. The, the canvas or fabric or leather can be sewn with templates. But so if you have sizes six through 12 and you have half sizes also, that's a heck of a lot of molds just for that's the sole. That's a lot of mold. That's wow. a lot of mold. And at that time, it was about $2,500 for each size. You know, I re- Im- imagine you have to make almost 12, 13 sizes. That time. And when you were making the shoes, did you have a plan on where you were even going to sell them at? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so you were completely prepared for all of this. <laughs> I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was just so passionate about the shoes. All of my friends, all the people that saw the shoes, they really liked them. I, this is really cool. You should make them. So I went ahead and made 7,512 pairs of shoes without realizing or without planning, without knowing what in the world I'm, I'm going to do with those shoes. <laughs> it was tough, you know, but I went to trade shows. I finally uh, uh, got in touch with Amazon. Uh, those were the days Amazon was just transitioning from just selling books into selling other merchandise. Uh, so they, you know, they said, wow. So how were you introduced to Amazon? Because at that time, nobody knew to sell on Amazon. So in, you know, those early 2000s, what gave you the idea of like, oh, maybe I can sell it on Amazon? I think it was my wife that was just poking around. She was like, we just, we were newly married then. So, you know, she didn't have any job. She didn't have anything. She came from England. And so we were like, you know, whatever. So she found, she likes to research stuff. So she found out, you know, we could sell on Amazon. Like, I didn't know booksellers. Like, yeah, no, no, no. Now they're selling some, you know, I see some other products, some clothing on it. Like, oh, yeah, whatever, let's do it. And she reached out to Amazon, and Amazon was like, yeah, we like your shoes. Come on board. And then they sent us like a, like a, like a CSV file or something. You have to put all your images on a, on a server and, put, and point the link to that server. And once you upload, it shoots out some bunch of errors. <laughs> you know, you have to fix each errors on each line. It was really, really crazy. Because there was no like seller central, there was no good. You were literally just uploading spreadsheets into Amazon servers. Exactly. No seller central, no user interface. You're just almost going blindly to do it. You, you upload it and hope that everything is right because it becomes live on Amazon's pages. Crazy. Yeah. All right, keep going. So, so we uh, started selling and the shoes were moving. We, we couldn't, there was no advertising. So you just have to you know, sit and pray and hope that someone finds you. Uh, but, you know, we were having a lot of orders. We were getting a lot of orders and we were shipping it out of California uh, from some guy you know, who had a warehouse, uh, was shipping it out because there was no FBA. Um, it was doing good until people started returning the shoes because they were made a little too small. So a lot of people wanted to uh, exchange it for a bigger size and it started to get to me. I'm like, oh, how am I going to do this? The fulfillment, there's no 3PL. There was no reliable fulfillment at that time. So these guys will receive uh, the, the returns and then they would figure out how to send in replacement. It was just too much. I was so discouraged. 
I had to, you know, find ways to sell off my inventory. So I went ahead and found some guy out of Florida and I sold all the remaining, who knows, 6,000 or whatever PS to him. Uh, and then I had to start all over again. But something good really came out of this. The moment I sold out, uh, some companies uh, started to reach out to me. Some, even some individuals they started to reach out to me. It's like, how did you make those shoes? That, was, that must have been very difficult. I'm like, yeah, it is difficult. He said, but could you make products for us as well? Like, uh, I think I can. So that's what got me into product design and development. I started making products, designing products for other companies, sourcing it out of China because by that, by that, by that time I was, I'd been to China several times. Uh, so I started, you know, uh, my path through, you know, product design and product sourcing. Wow. So your business trajectory changed. You thought you were going to be a shoe magnet or magnate. I don't know how you pronounce that, that really fancy word, you know, uh-huh. but, um, but then you turn into a sourcing guy, right? Yeah. Um, that's really similar to how I got involved with sourcing is people just calling me and saying, Hey, I see you found a product. Can you find mine too? Right. So, uh, very similar track. So did you continue developing other products for yourself to sell online or did you just start operating as a service for other brands? I just started operating as a personal, uh, as a service, uh, to other, co- uh, other companies and individuals. Uh, eventually I did get back to, uh, designing my own products, but, uh, the service side was just a lot for me. So I kind of stayed 90% more to provide the services to other people. And I know that eventually your path led you to like, even working as a strategic consultant for Alibaba. And I know you can't talk about that cause you're under NDA, but how did Alibaba even find you? Well, uh, Alibaba reached out to me because they realized I was moving a lot of volume on their platform. So the guys there was like, who is this guy, you know, buying millions and millions of dollars on this platform. So they reached out to me. They asked me to come to their office in New York. I get to meet with their, you know, North American, uh, uh, um, head of, uh, of North America and uh, some other cool guys on their team. And uh, they were working on some things inside Alibaba and they wanted me to uh, consult and just help them to uh, navigate to, know, uh, to, to make that product better. So I was there, uh, a couple of times to help them with, with it. That's awesome. Not a lot of people can put that on their resume, right? <laughs> um, so now you let's fast forward a little bit. You now have the company Honu worldwide, right? And that's a collaboration with some other folks I know you're involved with and you're doing some pretty cool things. I know that I've seen, you know, product sourcing, product development, uh, shipping logistics, you now have three PL warehousing here in the U S you have quality control measures. Am I missing anything else? Um, we do product photography as well. Okay. Yep. So the reason I mentioned that, not folks as a sales pitch for Honu Worldwide, but anybody that's in the service industry for more than a year with a specific company, I mean, they haven't run the company in the ground and they haven't bankrupted yet, means they, they must be growing. They must be doing something right. And a lot of times those are the folks that I like to bring in and ask questions because they're in the trenches. They're doing this. Yes, I could talk about products that I'm developing, but that means that I develop a few products a year. But someone like Off Lobby is seeing dozens, if not hundreds of products being developed every year. So he has this really great perspective, this like high level 
education and wisdom, so to speak, about product development, product design, quality control, logistics. And I think that, you know, if I had to review all of the different hardships that especially starting entrepreneurs have, right, in the e-commerce space, uh, one of the biggest problems is sourcing and logistics. And I don't know if it's because our minds just don't lean towards that way or because to do it well, you have to have a ton of connections. You have to have a lot of experience. You know, I see people just getting beat over the head, it seems like, with little things like HTS codes. But when you're learning how to sell online, the fun stuff is like, how am I going to design this product? How am I going to market it? How am I going to create my brand? Like nobody likes to sit and look at pages and pages of HTS codes. It's horrible. So because it's one of the biggest challenges and struggles that people have, that's why I want to talk about this today. So in this episode, we want to, to shed some light on the sourcing, the logistics, the, the supply chain management side of things from an expert that's been doing that now for you know a couple of decades at least and has a lot of experience. So when you're looking at the, the folks that you're working with, what are some of the biggest struggles that you see people having when it comes to managing their supply chain? Like time in and time out, like what are the struggles that people have? I think one of the major things is the culture, uh, especially when they're dealing with China. They don't understand the culture. Uh, and uh, dealing with China has a lot to do with understanding the Chinese culture and how to develop relationship with uh, suppliers in China. So when people reach out to suppliers, maybe on Alibaba platform or wherever they're reaching out, they're so quick. Like in America, everybody's so, people are so impatient and so quick. They want to get something really quick. And uh, they don't realize that uh, things don't really work that way. You have to be patient. A Chinese guy has to feel you out first. He has to be very comfortable with you. He's looking for a relationship rather than a quick transaction. So that's one of the major things I see. And people are so also quick to jump in into pricing wars with their suppliers and like, oh, I want to buy for 20 cents less. And, you know, you haven't even proven yourself to this supplier. You haven't ordered one cent of product and you're, you're, and you're trying to negotiate prices. How about start on a, you know, on a very small scale first, build trust, and then you can gradually, you know, make friends and start negotiating better terms in the future. Yeah, I've talked about this before and maybe even on this podcast, I can't remember. But the first time I went to China, well, the first time I went to China, I didn't have a Chinese visa. But that's a whole other story for another time about being interrogated by the, the Customs Border Patrol people in China, which was not fun. But I also went in with these preconceived notions. And maybe it's because, you know, I was raised a typical gringo American that had this, you know, perception that China was beneath other countries. You know, it was a second world country. It was still developing. and that that the typical Chinese manufacturer factory owner was begging for my business. You know, like they'd bend over backwards. And, and maybe it was because of the hospitality that I was showing. I was lining up this meeting. But remember the first like few cities I went to, these cities, the roads are dirty. You know, the factories might be dirty. You know, single bare light bulbs hanging from the ceiling. And it's not because they were desperate for work. They were just frugal. But out in front of these factories, there'd be 15 Porsches parked. Yeah. You know, there'd be a, a little crummy factory on a dirt road that has $400,000 cars parked out front. And I realized, holy crap, these folks, they're manufacturing for the world. And I'm coming in here trying to negotiate a 300-unit order with these guys. And they're stacking pallets for Pier 1 Imports and Target. Like, they don't need my business. So I think it was a big revelation to me that 
when it comes to especially good, legitimate, you know, price sensitive manufacturers in China, I need them more than they need me. So I agree, you know, people come in all the time. They're trying to beat people up. Man, if I'm an Alibaba supplier, whether a, a reseller or a factory, if you're coming at me with the super customized product and you only want 300 units, I've quoted you a dollar twenty, and you're trying to nickel and dime me down to a dollar. You're not worth my time. Like I, I, I'm gonna ignore your emails. I'm gonna move on to the next client because you're a giant pain in the butt, and I don't want to deal with you. Exactly, I agree with you, and that's another thing going on now. A lot of people have innovative products, or they want to make changes to say to their, you know, to to their products, and they only want to order two fifty units. These factories are dealing with millions of orders every year for them to devote their time for a 250 unit order it's even sometimes it's even unheard of but this many of them still do and yet we're hitting them with very you know impatience oh is it ready did you hear back from the factory what is the factory saying and then it gets to the time of order oh i only want to start with 100 units and the factory is like really <laughs> All these three months we've been working on this project, you only ordering a hundred. We would make a hundred units in one or two seconds in yep. this factory. And the way factories run, as you know, is they run to to the build to be making thousands every hour. And then we come in with a you know little order and they give us a price. I'm like, no, 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 but somebody else is getting it. My coach told me I have to get it at a dollar. <laughs> Yep. So those are some of the you know crazy things going on now, and I I really want to educate a lot of the new sellers to uh, so that they can know a little bit about the Chinese culture and even the whole manufacturing culture. That it's not mean; it's just that's the way things work. Manufacturing. Yeah, my best manufacturers and my best suppliers are have been the ones that you know I would send them a nice you know, cheesy video on Chinese New Year, wishing them a happy new year. And when, you know, I'd go to China, I'd bring them a gift from the US and I'd never beat them up on price. You know, if I'm looking at a product that I'm going to sell for 30 and my landed cost in the US is 10, well, after FBA fees, you know, generally speaking, I'm going to double my money. Why am I going to beat them up down to, you know, to save a dollar? I could ruin that relationship with them. And also I could get some some product fade, you know, some quality fade by by trying to knock the price down. So I completely agree with you, but we keep talking about China. Let me ask you this. You know, you're looking at this crystal ball of sourcing. Is China still going to continue to be the main hub for manufacturing of most products? Or do you think that, you know, with the the increased demand and the increasing prices in China, because prices are starting to go up because they can afford for them to go up, as well as maybe some of the political implications and, you know, uh, what's going on with you know, travel bans in and out of China with COVID. Do you think that other countries are going to start to assert themselves as manufacturing strongholds? I think it's already happening. Um, the price and the currency and the material that just hit us recently is just the boil over. I think five years ago, the shift has already started. Uh, a lot of middle class, there's a huge, uh, uh, boom in the middle class in China. So most of the most of the kids nowadays in China, they don't want to work in the factories anymore. Their dads own some of these factories. So the kid doesn't want to get his hands dirty. Guess what? 
people from Vietnam, from Philippines are migrating into China, and these are the ones working in the factory now. So China has been really struggling to keep their uh, worker base Chinese. Uh, that's raising the price little by little. It's been affecting it. And now the, the, the price of material and everything. So I think, I strongly believe a lot of manufacturing will be shifting a lot to India, to Pakistan, to Vietnam, uh, even to the Philippines. A lot are shifted to Malaysia, Singapore. Uh, and whether people believe it or not, Canada and U.S. and Mexico might be the three rising stars in, mm. in manufacturing because you can turn around your money quicker, can get product faster. From you know, from Mexico, you it's just you just drive in, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to wait on the water. Look, container is being shipped. A forty foot container is twelve thousand six hundred dollars from China to the U.S. From the China to the U.S. It and used to a year and a half ago, it was three thousand, right? Exactly, three thousand to twelve thousand six hundred. People are already waking up and like, what in the world is going on here? Mexico, wow. you just drive in the truck, <laughs> and your yep. product is here. You could make so many products in Canada that people don't even know about, and even in the U.S., things are starting to happen. Who are starting to seriously look at U.S. manufacturing. I've had a lot of uh, people, uh, brands, reach out to me saying that they want to do their final assembly in the U.S. So things are starting to move. I, China is still going to be strong uh, for, a, for a while. I'll say maybe 10 years more. But starting from around 10 years and above, I think a lot of companies will steal uh, most of those manufacturing. So if we're looking, you know, forward to these different places where manufacturing is going to happen, do the same methodologies of how you're going to, to build relationships and source products, does that stay the same regardless of where you're manufacturing? I believe so. I believe building relationship is multicultural. Yep. Any culture you go into, once you build a really good relationship with the supplier, I mean, I do have suppliers that they give me the products. They say, you go sell it and pay us next, you know, with three months down, five months. I do have some supplies I negotiated some trade terms with. I just pay them monthly. You know, they yeah. gave me like six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars line of credit. It's just, you know, we know you. That's yeah, our that's relationship. Awesome. That is relationship. You know, so I think it's multicultural and everybody should be able to, no matter what part of the world you're in, you should. It's the same rule. So that was one of my, you know, first question. The biggest struggles with supply chain, and and it sounds like your answer is people fail to actually build meaningful relationships. Yep. Right. What's another struggle that you see people having consistently in developing a supply chain for their brand? I think they have unrealistic uh, price targets. Um, they they try to skimp on every little thing, packaging. You know, some people ship products here with very thin boxes just to save 20 cents on their boxes. And by the time their products arrive here, it's all shattered. You know, and you have high damage rates. So unrealistic price target is another major one. Now, do you think that the unrealistic price target is actually a problem with supply chain? Or are we seeing it in supply chain, but the problem is actually in product selection? Meaning... 
you know, we see the the results of of the problems in supply chain, but really we're picking products that are so low margin, that are so competitive that we have to skimp and save every penny that we can, which creates an inferior product. Do you think I'm on the right track there? I believe so, uh, because it's almost it's almost like a domino effect when your product selection and your target price that you have in the back of your mind that you want to hit, regardless of quality. I, it's like you're, you're telling yourself, I don't care about the quality. I just want this price because I want to mix, I want to mix X number. I want to make X dollars on, on this product. And guess what? It falls back on you know, supply chain in terms of when you're shipping, when you're uh, warehousing, when you those problems kind of show up eventually. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's tough because I think a lot of people get discouraged by all of this. You know, I think there's a big opportunity for for developing products to sell in e-commerce, but people either pick their own products or people have their first order of stuff get broken. I worked with a lady once who was doing like stemware, you know, crystal stemware, beautiful stuff, but the packaging was skimped on and more than 60 or 70% of the product when it arrived was shattered. And she gave up. She was done. And it's a shame because it's a problem that could have been fixed and she would have had this great product that would have continued to sell, but she couldn't get that problem, you know, or she, she gave up before that problem was fixed. Yeah. Give us one more and then we'll move off, but give us one more consistently obvious problem that people run into with supply chain. Something that just drives people insane that they're always asking questions about. Seems like they can never find the solution. to. I would say, uh, the true landed cost is another major thing. Um, you mean understanding the true landed cost? Like people just don't realize what it's actually going to cost? Exactly. They don't. And they don't also realize that shipping prices changes. Uh, shipping price changes every two weeks. So once they get a quote, and in two weeks they realize the quote expired and another quote comes in, they're thrown off. They don't understand uh, the tariff is another major one. Uh, when people are selecting products, they don't realize that you have to pay U.S. customs, have to pay you know your customs when you're coming in, and they have no clue how to do how to know what their custom rates are. You mentioned HTS code; they have to select the right HTS code when coming in. So people usually struggle with this uh, because at the very end of their supply chain, something called customs pop up and they were like, what is that? Oh yeah, you're paying 25% on this. Well, I'm not prepared for that. They never told me that. <laughs> you or know? you get an intensive exam and that $4,000 container just became $8,000. Exactly. And delayed for 45 days. But, <laughs> and those are things that, that we should be able to control, but sometimes we can't control because sometimes we think the HTS code will be one thing. And folks, the HTS code stands for harmonized tariff schedule. It's like the catalog that says, this product I'm holding in my hand is this HTS code, which is at this rate. But sometimes that's subjective. You know, if I have a, a, a drinking glass, the HTS code for drinking glass is different than for whiskey glass. You know, so sometimes the, the Border Patrol folks will say, no, this is a whiskey glass. And I say, no, it's a juice glass. They say, no, it's a whiskey glass. And they have different HTS codes, right? And one of, so you're also talking about like not understanding the true cost of shipping. And this is something that I've struggled with that maybe you could have a solution for. If I'm looking at potentially manufacturing a product to sell, 
I need to understand my cost. So I'm going to get, I don't know, ideas. I'm going to get estimates. Um, I'm going to call up my shipping freight forward and say, hey, if I had to do, you know, a half a container of these, what would it cost me, do you think? And I'm making a decision now, and then I'm going to send the initial payment. They're going to do the manufacturing. Then they're going to finish the manufacturing. And I'm not actually shipping this thing till a month or a month and a half further down the line. And then also some things will come back differently from the manufacturer. They'll say, well, we thought the cartons were going to be this size. The cartons are actually a little bit bigger. So there's a lot of variables. So we're in this weird position where we want to get as much information as we can, but we drive our suppliers and our shippers insane getting quotes for products we're not actually buying. I know it's a big problem with shipping. You know, 90% of the quotes that come in are just speculative quotes, right? So is there a solution? Because I know it's frustrating for the suppliers and the shippers. I know it's frustrating for people thinking about buying this product because there's so many variables or unknowns. The way that I've combated that is picking the right product in the first place that has so much margins that I could absorb a pretty big hit. It doesn't matter if the container is going to cost $4,000 or $6,000. I'm still going to be very profitable. But what do you give people as far as advice on how to handle that kind of weird conundrum? Like, is there a solution? I think there are two solutions that actually you already talked about while you were, uh, while you were talking. And the first one is to allow enough buffer when you're picking products. When you're picking your product, make sure you have enough buffer so that in case there's a bump or there's a, a, a spike in, in shipping price, it won't hurt you. And the number two is do not be tied emotionally tied to a retail price, your MSRP. If something is going to lose you money, raise your price. You know, people were like, oh, but my competitor, you know, they're still selling. Well, maybe your competitor is losing money, just doesn't know yet. <laughs> you know, you too raise your price. If something was costing you a dollar to ship before and now it's costing you four bucks to ship, please raise your price by another $5. You know, it's okay to... You're, you know, you're doing this to make money. You're doing this to make profit. You're not doing it to, you know, to give all the shippers money. And then at the end of the day, you have nothing to show. So I think those two things have uh, uh, pick a product and make sure you have a buffer in your product, more than enough uh, uh, buffer to be able to still absorb any fluctuations in shipping cost, and also be, be willing to raise your prices. So when we started this episode, I didn't know what route we were going to go down. I just know <laughs> that you're involved with one of the biggest challenges that e-commerce entrepreneurs have, which is supply chain. So I'm glad we're hitting all of this stuff. But let me ask you this, because I know that it's a struggle. You know, some of this stuff is tough to, to grasp. There's a lot of unexpected changes. And even talking to you, I don't have a great warm, fuzzy feeling that there's a solution for a lot of this. You know, the solution for tariffs going up or shipping going up it's not really a solution because the solution is just make sure you have enough products, uh, you know, profit to absorb this. Uh -huh. Do you think that, and, and let me also back up another thing and, and share another thought. I think that shipping logistics is getting easier for e-commerce sellers, especially Amazon sellers. Remember back in, you know, 2015, 2016, you know, by the time you'd been doing it for 15 years, I want to make a note, but when I got started a few years ago, <laughs> things were harder than they are now. Chinese suppliers didn't know how to ship straight to FBA. We were limited on what we could ship straight to FBA or how we could. And there weren't as many 3PLs that understood the e-commerce process. So I think the industry is starting to adjust to make more, to create more solutions for us. But it's still hard. It's still one of the biggest tripping points. It's still in my coaching program, one of the, the most frequent questions that we have asked. So let me ask you this. 
do you think that the shipping logistics supply chain manufacturing process is going to continue to become easier? Or do you think that we're kind of at a plateau where we're just going to have to learn to, to live with the way it is now? I think it's going to become easier, uh, especially because of the automation being built into it, uh, because of the robotics uh, that is being introduced. A lot of warehouses and 3PLs are now having access to robots. A lot of codes are now being built into products that you could easily scan them, could easily move products faster, quicker, more efficiently. And like you said, you can now, you can now ship from China direct uh, to, uh, uh, to Amazon if you're an Amazon seller. And I did hear from uh, one of my uh, uh, customs, uh, my trucker, he actually said that uh, it looks like Amazon is building peers their own peers all over the country. And uh, so when, the, when, uh, when ships come, uh, they just drop it onto their rail and they rail it to where the truck can pick it up. So their trucks, Amazon trucks, are not actually going into the, pier, uh, into the, uh, into the port anymore. There's a separate rail area that the rail takes it from the pier and the Amazon truck meets it. So it makes things go faster. Other trucks are standing and the, uh, they're waiting at the port for nine, 10 hours. But she told me that uh, Amazon trucks only spend 15, 30 minutes and they pick up and they leave. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yes. And then I think this year or next year, I think uh, Amazon also is getting an ocean liner status. Uh, that's what I heard. So now they've been pitching global uh, shipping whereby you, they can pick it up know, from your factory or they can pick it up from anywhere and bring it by themselves. So maybe they will become their own ship. Who knows? Now, they uh, tried that a few years ago. Remember Operation Dragon Boat, they called it? Uh-huh. And it was a disaster. It never worked. So you think maybe <laughs> they, they learned those lessons and figured it out? Because that would be pretty yeah. cool if, if you could drop your stuff off essentially to Amazon at Ningbo, China, and they've uh-huh. got it from there. That would be pretty cool. Yep. So um, it's getting easier, I believe. Do you think it'll ever get to to be so easy that anybody can do it? Because I love the one thing I love about successfully selling on like Amazon or e-commerce is there's just enough of a barrier to entry. It's just hard enough that it scares a lot of the lazy people away. Do you think that logistics and supply chain will become so easy that anybody can do it and it'll actually create more crappy competition for us? Well, I wouldn't say just anybody could do it. I believe that there will be some apps that that would come out eventually whereby you can click, click, click. It will be more convenient, but it doesn't mean that it would be more affordable. Uh, If anybody that could build automation and build uh, a connect app to make it easy for anybody to click. I mean, Alibaba has uh, uh, shipping built into their system, but people still realize it still costs a lot more. Uh, yeah. Then, so it's not going to cost less, but it's going to be more convenient. Makes complete sense. All right, as we're getting ready to wrap up, what's one tip that uh, that you would love to share with our audience about sourcing logistics supply chain? Something they may have never heard before. One quick tip to to start to wrap this thing up. What would it be? Well, uh, I've in my years of dealing with a lot of brands, um, one thing I can say is to 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 ensure the longevity of your business, I think it's time to innovate. Uh, We see a lot of the factories competing with you now. 
A lot of uh, Chinese factories are in the market. They're learning and copying every single thing you're doing. So, but if you can innovate and protect your innovation, I think that's the major key uh, into your success now. There's no more Me Too product. Your Me Too product is pretty much a race to the bottom. If you're selling what everybody else is selling, it's just a matter of time. The light is going to go off really soon. So, but you come up with new ideas, better ways of doing things, and you protect it with patents or trademark or copyright. Most of these things are not expensive to do. If you do that, uh, the difference between a brand that lasts long and the ones that just come on and disappear is being very creative and building a brand around their creative products. That's awesome. That's great information. You got into business essentially right out of school, right? You started making sneakers and tennis shoes right out of school. Um, I know that you couldn't have learned all this yourself, right? You had to learn from some smarter folks than you on how to run a business. So I've been asking all of our recent guests, if you could go to your bookshelf right now and pick one book that made the largest impact, the most profound difference in your ability to create, scale, and succeed at business, what would that book be? I would say the series by Robert Kiyosaki. Starting from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, all the way to Rich Dad's Guide to Investment. I read that out of college and it was just a, a big blow on me. I mean, as an immigrant coming from Nigeria and then studying, you know, three, four years into the country, and I opened this book, I'm like, what? What is this guy talking about? <laughs> and the title of the book was so, you know, right on. It was like, what rich kids teach their kids that what the rich people teach their kids that the poor people don't. I'm like, wow. So I was reading at the lounge. I remember very well at the college lounge. I was reading and I'm like, what in the world am I doing here? <laughs> so that, that whole series, I still go back to it on and on to reread and reread. And it really changed my life. So are you coming to the Prosper Conference in July in Vegas? Let's see. I might. <laughs> All right. Well, if you come, uh, make sure to hit me up. We'll take you to dinner and you can uh, impart some more sourcing and supply chain wisdom on me. All right. I'll take you up on that offer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Well, thank you all for listening. If uh, you've learned anything from Mr. Alpha Lobby here, and if you've, you've gained any uh, good wisdom experience advice, make sure to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. If you're watching us on YouTube, make sure that you hit the thumbs up button, you like the video, and share it with your social media, with your audience. If you have one, we sure would appreciate that. We thank you guys for sticking around to the end, and we'll see you on the next episode.